Hey everybody, welcome back to the TeamCast. I'm Coleman Ruiz, Director of Performance at the Mission Critical Team Institute. And my conversation today is with Dr. Andrew Huberman, Associate Professor of Neurobiology at Stanford University and Principal Investigator and Director of his own lab, the Huberman Lab. Today is a long one and I kicked around the idea of making this into two episodes but kept it at one episode because of the flow of the conversation. So stay with us because we really pick up steam as we go. Today we discuss the neuroscience of quote unquote being on deployment or the science of long duration effort in rapidly emergent complex operating environments where the consequence of failure can be catastrophic. We discuss the basic physiology of the autonomic nervous system. We talk about attention, alertness, motivation, and focus. We discuss neurotransmitters such as norepinephrine and dopamine. We discuss how contextualizing and framing pressure or stress can train the central nervous system. We talk about how humans are old world primates and why that matters. And we discuss how positive self-talk can be delusional. We discuss panoramic vision, circadian rhythms, and something called the skeleton photo period. Luckily, we also discuss some of the basic stuff like the neuroscience of supporting a teammate. And our entire conversation is framed under the banner of a paper that Dr. Preston Klein and I recently wrote called What It's Actually Like on Deployment. You can find a link to that paper, of course, in the show notes. You can also find a link to a survey in the show notes The survey is a couple of short questions where we encourage you to share your own personal experiences because all the input we get from the larger community informs every other team that's involved in the Mission Critical Team Institute. We share out survey results and papers, of course, via our newsletter. And you can get in our newsletter by creating a login and signing up at our website, which automatically puts you on our distribution list. As always... Please send guest suggestions and or any suggestions to our email info at missioncti.com. That's info at missioncti.com. The TeamCast is produced by the Mission Critical Team Institute, where we ask, research, and try to answer the most common questions vexing the most elite mission critical teams in the world, from special operations soldiers to urban and wildland firefighters from trauma medics to professional athletes, and from astronauts to tactical law enforcement. And without further delay, enjoy the conversation with Dr. Andrew Huberman. I'm here this morning with Dr. Andrew Huberman, Associate Professor of Neurobiology at Stanford University and Principal and Director of the Huberman Lab, his lab, where they investigate how the human brain, the human brain senses, evaluates and responds to the world, essentially how the brain functions, changes, and repairs itself, otherwise called regeneration. I've been in Andrew's lab personally. I've seen him at work. I've been at multiple events with him, and I really, really appreciate you being here today, Andrew. If you could start us just by bringing us up to speed on how you got to where you are today. First of all, it's great to be here, and thanks so much for having me on. My background that led me to science has two paths that eventually converged. Uh, One path was really destined for science, we could say, 
Uh, my dad's a scientist. He's a theoretical physicist. So I grew up in a household where people talked about science a lot. Uh, my mom was a writer. Uh, so it was like books in science. No one really talked about sports, but I could tell you, you know, who won all the Nobel prizes in physics. Cause that's what my dad's field was. And we had graduate students and postdocs over for picnics and dinners and stuff. So I kind of grew up in that community. And when I was about six years old, you know, I asked my dad what he did for a living. And he told me in the, you know, in language I could more or less understand. And he, he said, you know, it's a great life being a scientist, you know, the, the feeling the night before your birthday. And I said, yeah, uh, definitely. Um, and he said, well, that's how I feel every day when I go to work. That's, and I thought, wow, well, then I definitely want to be a physicist. And he was also kind enough and wise enough to say, well, no, don't go into physics because by the time you're old enough to do science, a lot of that will be worked out. And I said, well, what should I do then? And, and he said, well, we don't know how much, we don't know much about how the brain works. And so I said, uh, I want to figure out how the brain works. So I was pretty much on that path. I always had an interest in biology and animals and um, how things work. I, I like observing things and looking for patterns. And then from about 14 to 19, you know, I took a very different path. I was not a phenomenal high school student, let's say less than stellar high school performance. I followed a high school girlfriend off to college. Uh, I just very much wanted to be near her. And when I was in college, this was UC Santa Barbara, I had a professor who taught something called biopsychology. There wasn't even neuroscience back then. And he talked about the physiology of temperature regulation. I'll never forget this lecture. And he talked about how you know, you could look at temperature regulation as just something that happens at the skin, but there's also this brain component of how we choose to interpret these sensations that we're having and how the brain and the body put those things together to decide whether or not something is tolerable or intolerable. He talked about hunger and feeding. He talked about mental disease. This was all before Prozac. You know, this was all before the big SSRI revolution. SSRIs are just stands for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So it was before antidepressants really hit the mainstream. It was really long before all that. And he, you know, he just seemed like such a cool guy and he knew so much. And I was really into fitness and martial arts and all, all that sort of thing too. And so I just made the decision, uh, you know, at 19, I, I wrote it down. I just said, I want to go to graduate school. I want to get a PhD in what eventually turned out to be neuroscience. I want to run a laboratory and I want to be a tenured professor. I, I just thought he had the coolest life. He would teach and run experiments. And it just seemed like for somebody like myself who craves novelty, it seemed like the right career path. And so basically for the last 25 years, that's all I've done, at least professionally. That's amazing. Andrew, did you actually, I guess this is an aside to the real focus of today, but did you actually write those goals down on paper? I did. It's funny because I still have that piece of paper up, up in my office. It was July 4th, 1994, which it was a significant day because there, I'd been at 4th of July barbecue and it was summer and I wasn't really doing much of anything. I was feeling very lost at the time, actually, even though I'd been kind of turned on to science, I was feeling, um, it's kind of like, I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. And, you know, and I've always had a pretty strong drive. I've always devoured information and whatever I'm into, I tend to throw myself at. And I, I was feeling pretty restless. And so when I wrote that down, it was it was important enough to me that I actually mailed a letter to my parents. I believe I did this telling them what I was going to do. So I, there was something important about writing it down. And there was something important to me about exporting it to people. I don't know if it was about accountability. I just, I wanted to make it that real. So, you know, that's how it went. Yeah. That's phenomenal. On July 4th of 1994, I was in the middle of plebe summer 
at the U.S. Naval Academy, which I guess will catapult us into a little bit of this conversation because it's it's certainly relevant, this particular topic, which is really interesting to our entire community, the entire Mission Critical Team Institute community of urban and wildland firefighters, special operations soldiers, professional athletes, astronauts, police, you name it, who are really sort of always on the front lines of what we might call pressure or stress, just in the general, you know, we use those terms in the the zeitgeist sort of loosely, it seems, but we certainly are going to talk about that today. But let me start us with a little bit of a personal story so I can share with the audience and orient the audience on why this conversation is relevant to me, why I think it's relevant to the Mission Critical Team Institute community as well. So you talk about not being a great high school student, but I didn't have the greatest two years in, in sixth and seventh grade in, in, I guess, junior high, middle school, whatever it's called. And I remember like detention after detention and on the cusp of suspension, I would be, you know, I would come home and either mow the lawn or run and I've seen him on a lapse around the neighborhood to get ready for my dad coming home. And after the physical activity, I felt so much better, so much more stable and so much less afraid to face whatever consequences I was going to face when my father came home. That, that story only came back to me and became relevant in 2008 when I was already graduated the Naval Academy, had wrestled my entire life you know, from when I was a kid all the way through college and selected for the SEAL teams, went through BUDS, was a platoon commander in Iraq. And when we went into Iraq in 2003, uh, had served as an instructor back at our training school in 2005, and then went through our advanced training program in Virginia Beach in 2006. And then I had done another combat tour. And so this gets me to 2008. And I pick up this book, Spark, by Dr. John Rady. And the subtitle is The Revolutionary New Science of Exercise and the Brain. And what I read in Spark, Andrew, was none of this is a surprise to you, of course, but I had never heard of things called brain-derived neurotropic factor or any other neurotropic factor. I had never heard that there were chemicals and molecules that promoted plasticity in the brain. I had never heard that there was a way to integrate and respond to stress psychologically that also affected in a positive way chemicals and hormones that are associated with stress. In fact, in the marginalia of the book, I asked myself, I have a quote here, is mental toughness just amygdala control? And of course, Mm -hmm. you know, I kept reading the book and I learned something about alertness and attention and motivation and I skipped the chapters on anxiety, depression, attention deficit, addiction, and aging, all of which I would need later, but I didn't know it at the time, which is, which is another part of the story. And then I had this, I flipped to the bibliography and I just went, I just went wild. I read Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, Gavin DeBecker's book, The Gift of Fear, T.S. Wiley and Bent Formby's book, Lights Out, Sleep, Sugar, and Survival. And then on combat, the psychology and physiology of deadly conflict and war and peace. And this started a, you know, now it's 2020. So really a 12 year journey and an interest in the physiology and the psychology of, you know, as you described so, so well, long duration, you know, difficult 
performance slash stress events. And, and, I'll, and I'll let you unpack that for us. So I wanted to just reset us in that sense. So it would give you a jumping off point. And what I would love for you to share with the audience, and obviously take as much time as you want here. And thinking about the article I wrote that you and I have discussed, what it's actually like on deployment, which I tried to describe for a general audience, what it must feel like to be a frontline healthcare worker. If you could maybe use that as the framework, the basic physiology of a frontline healthcare provider, what are they feeling and going through right now in terms of the physiology of the brain and the body? Yeah, that's a great question. So frontline medical workers right now are, you know, because we're about six weeks into the U.S. response to COVID-19, they're probably hitting that phase of the, let's call it the stress cycle, but um, we'll talk a little bit more about what we mean by stress exactly. That is really where they're probably starting to drag. So on the, on the upside, they're probably in a rhythm, but they're, they're probably exhausted and they're pushing through exhaustion right now. Because what we know about stress is that you know, stress was designed to move us, right? When something, you know, think about um, a, what we would call an acute stress. You know, you're driving along, you look at your phone and maybe you get a troubling text message. Just something's off or something's, something's bad. You know, kid's sick and you've got to be one place and you're someplace else. That kind of like pulse that you feel of energy and alertness and focus, that's what really acute stress was designed for. It was designed to mobilize you. It was designed to narrow your attention and it was designed to put you into action. And it is remarkable what human beings can do with those short-term stress responses. It has a lot to do with adrenaline release in the body. Uh, For those of you, since there's a number of people here, military and athletes, and you've done martial arts, presumably, I always say, you know, it's always amazing how little it hurts when you're fired up and you get hit, but it's always amazing how much it hurts later, right? And that's the adrenaline response in a nutshell. It's, you know, you can lean into anything with a pulse of adrenaline. You can really mobilize. But what happens is that, that was designed to be a short-term pulse to your nervous system. I should just mention that early in the stress response also, you get a immune boost. This is something that's often not discussed, but this makes a lot of sense. If you've ever pushed really hard for a while and then rested, you tend to get sick during the rest phase when you finally slow down. And we can talk a little bit more about that because it's going to be important for these medical workers now as they head into the, let's hope, the later stages of this pandemic treatment cycle. But right now, these medical workers are not in the early phase where you sort of feel like you could do anything, you could lean into anything. They're not in the late phase where they're starting to really start dragging hard. They're in this long period of kind of empty uncertainty. So it's this uncertainty that really troubles the brain and nervous system, and for which it's so important that articles like the one you wrote are are read and understood. Because Really, when you take, anxiety is terrible, but anxiety can move us. That's what I was saying before. You know, you can get these pulses of adrenaline and it can really mobilize you. But when you start wondering whether or not what you're doing is even having an an impact overall, and you start feeling like you have to drag yourself to the race every day, when you start weaving uncertainty into your actions, that's when you can really start to deplete the nervous system because the nervous system has two modes primarily. One, when when in effort, there are multiple modes, but when in effort. One is 
just burn. I, I call it burn rate. You're leaning in hard. You're like, I can do this. I can crush this. I can do this. But there's not an infinite amount of resources to do that. And it really boils down to a, a molecule called epinephrine, which is a lot like adrenaline. These are all part of this larger class of molecules. For those of you that are that the aficionados, this relates to things like glucocorticoids and so forth, which we'll talk more about. But these are basically hormones and, and chemicals that are released in your brain and body that are designed to move you. Now, you can't do that indefinitely. If you want to be able to push through long periods of effort and strain, as these medical workers and military operators and first responders need to, need to do and are familiar with that process, you have to have ways to buffer that response. What I mean by that is you have to have ways to reduce the burn rate. And that comes through a, a different set of chemicals, such as dopamine, which in particular dopamine, which is a remarkably powerful molecule. It's typically associated with reward when you reach a milestone or you have a win or you succeed in something. But dopamine is actually operating all the time to push back on the epinephrine, the adrenaline, and allow you to continue. So you've all experienced this, presumably, if you're ever just really down in the, the dumps about something or a team is, is flagging and things are just not going well and someone cracks a joke. And when that happens, when someone cracks a joke, immediately you get a, a lift, presuming the joke is funny. Now, the fact that it's an immediate lift and a reset is not coincidental. First of all, the fact that it's so fast, that it's immediate, means it can't be hormonal. You didn't get a, an immediate testosterone boost. You didn't get uh, you know, an oxytocin boost. It's not about group bonding, although that, that's a byproduct that will come later. What you got was a pulse of dopamine. And that pulse of dopamine, which is in your brain, it pushes that epinephrine, that adrenaline down to more manageable levels. So you're not grinding quite as hard. Suddenly the same effort is tolerable or even pleasurable. And the, it happens in a millisecond, right? And this is nature's ancient hardwired way of restoring our ability to push on in a regenerative way, not in a way that depletes us. So it's a remarkable thing and it's built into all animals, not just humans, but Gratitude is another way to access this. Um, humor is an especially powerful one. Attaching uh, one's actions to meaning, or even better, a whole group to meaning, a higher purpose is, is another way to do it. But these molecules that I'm talking about, they're, they're not fictitious, they are real, they exist in all of us. And to sort of circle back to your question and answer it now with these molecules in mind, these workers right now, uh, these medical workers are at a point where they need dopamine. They're, they, they're putting out adrenaline every day, effort, 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 effort. They need dopamine hits. And those dopamine hits have to come in the form of humor. I noticed in your article, you mentioned even dark humor, which I thought was really interesting because even dark humor is humor. Sometimes you just have to take the dark and look at that and chuckle or laugh or just shake your head and be like, you know, can it get any worse? This dopamine and its relationship to human behavior and human interaction is, is an immensely important aspect to human beings' ability to push through anything of long duration and uncertainty. There's so many analogs to so many environments that you work in and we've all, you know, we've all worked in, Andrew. I know the, the audience here will agree with everything you said. So there's a section we do at the very end called what to do on Monday, where we'll, of course, summarize. And I'm going to push us back to this. And you're great at doing this. And you've already mentioned a few things already. You know, what can a person do on Monday? But so I'm, 
I'm thinking about our teammates, again, on the front lines of healthcare. You've described, you know, what they're going through. I'm, I'm always so curious about, even for special operations folks, which is my community, when we mix as teams, you know, Navy guys go through a different training than Army guys and Air Force guys than Marine Corps, et cetera, et cetera. And you can see sometimes when folks go on deployment, even though I always had in my mind that people were going to have these these really similar responses to, you know, again, what Dave Grossman calls deadly conflict and war and peace. But any combat deployment, I thought, well, it's most likely that everybody is going to respond the same. Of course, I suppose I just wasn't thinking about it deeply enough. That just, you know, that just wasn't the case. And can you just talk a little bit about the cognitive dissonance of this liminality? When coronavirus showed up and the, the rush of activity in the hospitals people suddenly found themselves on deployment. What was, what was going on with them internally? And what, what's the best thing that anybody can do when that uncertainty that you described kicks in? How, what's the best thing we can do to regain certainty? So when this first happened, you know, we saw a variety of responses, right? Denial, fear, you know, every, as you say, you know, people been out into different categories of response. One of the things that we all, you know, we just need to accept is that when circumstances change and we need to learn all the new contingencies, we're just going to be preoccupied by what's called serial processing. So at the beginning of all this, people were pretty upset that, you know, now you had to think about whether or not you touched a door handle, you had to wash your hands more, you had to, you just had to think about so many more things than we had been you know, doing before the, you know, normally I get up, I brush my teeth, I make my coffee, I move about my day, I go to the store. Now I have to think about what sequence I'm going to do things in a little bit more. I have to, if I go to the store, it's a whole different experience. And it occupies a lot more of what we call, you know, the top down processing, which is just a, a scientist, you know, geek speak for not being reflexive. We have to be really deliberate and concentrate. And the human brain is really good at being deliberate and concentrating, but it also it would, it would prefer to do things reflexively because it occupies a lot less neural energy. It's just less burn rate. And so heading into this, people were angry. They were, some people were really mobilized. A lot of people who, who have a lot of extra energy and who like problem solving, who like puzzles and tend to have um, a tendency to just really lean in hard when things get, get tough. A lot of those people were you know, really excited to, to get mobilized and to, and to do work. And other people were still wishing for life three weeks ago or three months ago. So that was the early phase. And I think it has to do with this business of serial processing. And as you put in the article, and I think it's very astute, you know, that accepting this is happening is one of the quickest ways to transition into something, but it also reduces your burn rate. If I'm spending time thinking, um, you know, I'm upset that I have to wait in line at the store six feet from other people. I'm frustrated about having to, you know, scrub in and scrub out at the hospital twice as much. If I'm focusing on that, I'm that's burn rate. That's that adrenaline. That's that norepinephrine. So really good operators, really good medical professionals, effective people in any in any career or pursuit. They they look at what's happening and they accept it and they move into that immediately and they they try as best we can, you know, we try not to reminisce because the, the frustration over what things aren't 
and the new normal, so to speak, and the fact that we don't like it, that's depleting these neurotransmitters. So you're think about it like you have a bank account and you're in a casino. You know, I'm not a big gambler, but none of these actions that we're talking about or none of these mindsets are like spending your whole your whole lot of money right there and then. But it's like spending quarters in the quarter slots. And pretty soon you're down to nothing. And so for every moment that people are saying, oh, you know, we used to meet for, you know, we used to meet for coffee or we used to hang out, like you put this in the article too. I love this because it really speaks to this you know, with a really concrete example. You know, it used to be people would sit around and have their coffee and chat about the weekend. Now people are showing up, gowning up, scrubbing in and getting to work. And so the acceptance that that's happening and the, and the willingness to just do that as opposed to reminiscing about how it used to be is going to save you noradrenaline. You've got more noradrenaline to spend down the road. And that can be the difference between people burning out, getting sick, and you know being able to thrive through this. It, it's, a, it's a real thing. Every bit of serial processing, every bit of concentration, every bit of frustration we feel can move us, but we have to know that we're spending when we do that. So we have to be very prudent as to how we lean in and how we replenish this reserve of noradrenaline. Now, I'll just say one thing, you know, the main way we replenish noradrenaline is through sleep. In sleep, there's all sorts of things about adenosine and noradrenaline, these neurochemicals that get rolled back uphill to a place where we have our reserves set for us the next day. And I find it um, not so coincidental that a lot of the screening procedures for high pressure combat communities are about being able to manage despite lack of sleep. I actually think I've never done buds, obviously, but from what I understand, the, the reason you have something like a hell week, you have a five day uh, sleep deprivation period is to say, well, who can manage their noradrenaline and their dopamine, whether or not they're you know using dopamine to give themselves a boost throughout, but who who can manage these neurotransmitters? I think at a kind of neurobiological level, that's how I look at something uh, like sleep deprivation or buds or these medical responders that are now in the hospitals. You know, they've got to manage their noradrenaline. That's how I see it. So there's this, like you mentioned in, you know, in Hell Week and in buds, which is different than the real world, of course. I feel like there's all these different behavioral tricks we can play with our minds during a thing like Hell Week, which is I have to as an example, I have to assume the Navy's not going to intentionally kill me. So I can figure out, I can think nothing of my noradrenaline and my dopamine and any other things other than go harder for longer with more intensity, right? This was my rule for myself when I was going through training was if 200 people are going to start the course and if I go harder for longer with more intensity, then that will work because I'll just outlast one person. And if we go down to two people, which of course that doesn't happen, I only have to outlast one person at a time. The trouble physiologically and psychologically that I think I got myself into, Andrew, frankly, was I took that into the real world to go harder for longer with more intensity and another longer story for another day. But what I learned, and I want to hear you know, more thoughts about chronic stress from you over the, over the long duration, you know, again, thinking of our, our frontline healthcare workers was that I couldn't keep that burn for that long, no matter how many, for lack of a better term, dopamine mitigation activities that I did to buffer the norepinephrine, eventually you just can't burn that long, you know, and obviously you know this. And so, so now our teammates, okay, they crossed the Rubicon, they went on deployment quote unquote, on deployment, 
they sorted out presumably over the last five or six weeks, their serial processing by uh, re-engineering their battle rhythms, as I describe. And I worry about the danger of this long-term, long-duration burn for them. Can you just talk about the chronic nature of, you know, the situation they could be in? Yeah. So in the short term, stress is good. It mobilizes us. It cues us to the fact that things are different, which is very important. It mobilizes our immune system. It actually enhances our immunity, right? This is why cold water exposure or some high intensity breathing actually triggers an improvement in the immune system's function. But over time, if that noradrenaline stays too high, another hormone comes online and is released from the adrenal glands. These are two little glands sit right above your kidneys and your lower back, and that's cortisol. And cortisol itself isn't bad. You know, every day when we wake up in the morning, we get a little blip of cortisol. It's what makes you feel like you can get up and move around in the morning. Makes you want to lean into things for the day. But when cortisol is chronically high, bad things start to happen. You know, that there's actually a phenomenon called a 9 p.m. cortisol pulse, which, you know, physicians and uh, psychiatrists and neurobiologists see as a signature of anxiety and depression creeping in. You know, it comes on at different times for other people, you know, some people, for different people, excuse me, some people are, are more optimistic than others at kind of baseline. But when cortisol is high, not just in the morning, but throughout the day and starting to head into the evening, and even in the middle of the night as we're sleeping, some, when people are really stressed, you know, cortisol can start to creep into sleep. What ends up happening is the body's really moving into pure survival mode. It's starting to secrete hormones and things that make you retain water to retain fat. And this is not just about body composition. This isn't about looking good. This is about the body really shifting into a mode of quieting the reproductive hormones. This would be mainly testosterone for men, mainly estrogen for women, you know, really telling the, the whole body as a system, look, this is not going to be a good time to reproduce. This is not going to be a time for energy. There's not a time for keeping the muscle you've got. Muscle's too costly. Let's build fat stores. Let's retain water in case there's mm. dehydration. I mean, that's the, the whole system starts to veer toward safety and toward being able to, you know, you have to imagine that these, these physiological systems were designed so that we could, you know, head into a cave if we needed to for quite a long period of time or to, you know, crawl under a bunch of, you know, leaf hut, whatever, whatever shelter one could create. These systems were designed to really protect us for long periods of time. And so when the body starts preparing for long duration stress, that's when you start seeing a complete shift of hormones and neurochemicals toward a state that is really uh, where we are quite vulnerable. And when I say quite vulnerable, you know, I, you know, in states where cortisol is high, we're not just vulnerable to the one virus, we're vulnerable to viruses and bacteria. There's some, actually some really beautiful mechanisms that make sure that we don't get multiple viruses. A lot of people, um, this isn't discussed that much, but we can talk about some other time, but there's a whole interferon response system. It's pretty cool actually, because it says, you know, you're, you're probably not going to get multiple viruses at the same time. But you know, a lot of times when people get the flu, they also get a sinus infection and then they start feeling depressed. And of course, you know, mm. who, but it's because the whole system is crashing, but it's crashing to a place of preservation. And so for people that are leaning in hard for professional reasons or for other reasons right now, or if you're familiar with this from, uh, for any of your listeners are familiar with this from their work in the past, at that point, Based on what we've already discussed, more noradrenaline isn't going to work. Caffeine pills, 
um, amphetamine, anything that gets you mobilized and going, is just going to drive you deeper into this trench, right? It really is a time in which if you, if you hit that point, you really need to think about restoration through other neural systems. And we could talk about what those neural systems are, but to put a little bit of practicality on it, because I do realize that you can't take somebody who's working the swing shift and round the clock and, um, and working 16, 18, or even longer days, or is nocturnal and say, oh, you need to get more rest. That's just not going to work, right? Because they can't get more rest by definition. Right. Um, what they need to do is start introducing periods of stillness. But what I mean by that is not woo. It's not a uh, new agey. What I mean is they need to start introducing periods throughout the day where sensory input is very low to zero. Got it. Now that, and, and there's some very powerful practices for just, this could even, this could be sitting for five minutes with eyes closed, just concentrating on breathing. This could be going into a coat closet at work and just no phone and just, just, hanging out in there for five minutes or two minutes, limiting sensory input. The amount of sensory input that we're getting normally is tolerable and we have a huge capacity for that. But when we start hitting these, these points of high cortisol and where the system is just really trying to replenish itself, we need periods of time with no sensory input. And that's really what sleep is. Sleep is the only period of time when you're only really in relation to yourself, whatever's cooking around in your brain. And we have dreams and things like that. But sensory input is minimized and you because you're lying down your eyes are closed etc and your perceptions are just whatever is going on in your own head so from a practical standpoint when you start hitting the the really deep trenches of, of long-term uncertainty stress it's very important to have periods of time the longer the better but even short ones are going to help of very low sensory input. My lab actually works on this. There, there are a number of scripts that one can use. You can actually just lie down and do, it's not meditation, it's like a deep relaxation script. You're focusing mainly on your body sensations and it sounds again kind of, kind of woo and wonky, but what it's really about is limiting the amount of sensory input coming into your nervous system so that you can replenish some of these neurochemicals and get your system convinced that it can lean back into life. Because if you've ever been sick, lights are kind of aversive, you don't want, you just don't want input. And that's because your system is trying to restore these uh, itself uh, to baseline again. Andrew, do we know for sure that what you just described, I have my own personal experience with it, which I'll just talk about briefly here in a second. Do we know for sure from an autonomic nervous system perspective that five minutes, 10 minutes of what you just described, whether it's yoga nidra, which you can talk about here in a minute, or if it's just literally sitting in a dark room, does that for sure put us into a parasympathetic state if we're at least doing it well enough? Yes, it definitely puts us into a more calm parasympathetic state. There's a really nice study um, done out of a lab in Denmark looking at this particular practice, which I'm a fan of called yoga nidra, which doesn't involve any downward dogs or bends or anything like that. It's, it's you actually just lie down, you listen to a script, it has you concentrate on your breathing and it's a little bit of a body scan. So you're just moving your attention to different regions of your body. Um, and you're also paying attention to sounds in the room and then kind of moving your attention inward. It's really just limiting the amount of doing because you're lying down and it's limiting the amount of thinking. It's really um, occupying just enough of your forebrain circuits to keep you engaged, but you're not doing any analytic uh, thinking and you're certainly not stressing. This study from this group in Denmark shows that just 15 minutes of this can replenish 
stores of dopamine in an area of the brain called the basal ganglia, which we don't hear about that often, but the basal ganglia are involved in what's called premotor action planning. You know, a lot of our ability to move is about just reflexive movement, and a lot of it is about, you know, connections between the brain and muscle. But a lot of our ability to move and perform with high dexterity and concentration is about these brain areas called the basal ganglia, which set a rhythm to our movements, and they allow us to sequence things properly. And so what's really beautiful is that the basal ganglia are dependent on appropriate levels of dopamine, as well as some other neurochemicals, of course. But this study showed using what's called positron emission tomography, which can uh, monitor levels of dopamine, that the stillness for just 15 minutes allowed these people to restore their dopamine levels to actually levels that were higher than baseline before they went in. So it's a quite powerful practice to just limit sensory input and calm down. And even if you can't get really calm into deep states of relaxation, to just have a period of time where there's no no sensory information incoming. Very powerful. Got it. This is a, there's many asides here and there's many tributaries that I could take, but I'm going to try to keep us on the track of an arc here, but I just don't want to take a pause. When I think about it, so where my brain goes, Andrew, is okay, I'm working a whatever, a 12 to 16 hour shift and I'm listening to Coleman and Andrew talk and I do, I can potentially make five minutes to go sit in a room and my dopamine stores are going to be recharged. And then where my head goes, because I'm always curious, is like, how does it get recharged? Like, what's the chemical behind it? And then my next mental leap is, is there certain foods I should be eating during the day to make sure that the internals of my body can literally like refuel my system with the right fuel? I know you're not a nutritionist, but since we talked about, obviously, sleep and a certain amount of rest whether it's five minutes or 10 minutes, I have a sense of like what nutrition works for me, but is there anything that you would want to highlight on the nutrition side? Definitely. Um, so I'm not a nutritionist, but this is an area I care a lot about. And through, you know, I would say you know, about 30 years of, of being involved in sports and fitness, I'm, I'm not a professional athlete either, obviously, but there's a dramatic and uh, very tractable uh, relationship between the foods we eat and these neurochemicals. So it turns out that all of these neurochemicals, like let's take dopamine, for instance. Dopamine is synthesized from the amino acid tyrosine. Let's take another neurochemical like serotonin, which tends to cause kind of stillness and quiet and makes us more in kind of rest and relaxation. Serotonin is synthesized from the amino acid tryptophan. So this is the famous Thanksgiving turkey. Right. You know, you eat a lot of turkey and you get sleepy. That makes sense. The other thing that can trigger tryptophan is complex carbohydrates. So rice, pastas, this kind of thing. So tyrosine generally is going to be most enriched in meats, especially red meats. So one key point, if you eat a large volume of any food, the amount of blood that's siphoned off to your gut is going to make you sleepy no matter what. Okay, so you can eat foods that are going to promote tyrosine, like a you know if you eat a, a nice if you're really hungry and you eat a nice ribeye, um, you're gonna you're gonna replenish your tyrosine stores. You're gonna have more dopamine synthesized, and you're gonna feel energetic. Now, if you eat two ribeyes or three ribeyes, you're gonna have a lot of blood in your gut. And you're gonna be sleepy no matter what. So I just want to make that point that there's also about blood flow, but in general, most people find, and of course there's variation, but most people find that if they're keeping the 
complex carbohydrates low when they need to be active, but the tyrosine enriching foods high. So things like meats and nuts, they're going to have a lot of energy to push through the of the high demand phase of their cycle. Uh, some people I realize who are listening to this might be nocturnal because their work demands um, make them nocturnal. But let's say I'm gonna, let's say I've got a 16 hour day. I'd probably be better off doing, uh, at least in my case for me, I would say, you know, if I'm going to eat breakfast, it's probably going to be something like meat and nuts through the day. I might have like meats, nuts, vegetables, because you're going to secrete more noradrenaline and epinephrine and dopamine by virtue of the amino acids that those foods are bringing forward. And then toward sleep, let's say, let's say one is going to, uh, you're going to sleep around, I don't know, midnight, 1am, 2am. And of course you, you could adjust this depending on your cycle, uh, your work cycle. That's when you'd actually want to eat your complex carbohydrates because that's when you're going to transition to sleep more easily. And that's when you're going to get the deepest rest because you want that tryptophan pulse to give you the serotonin pulse. And this, it's not coincidental that a lot of the supplements for sleep are tryptophan, 5-HTP, uh, magnesium. These are all things that promote sleepiness and stillness. And they do that by promoting the secretion of serotonin. I'm not, uh, I'm not suggesting people supplement to push through these things, but things like caffeine, L-tyrosine, those are, uh, you know, those are chemicals that are going to have you make more noradrenaline and dopamine. So you're going to be able to lean into things harder. So the foods that promote norepinephrine and dopamine tend to be of the kind of red meat and nut variety, as well as vegetables. I think everybody should be eating. And so that's kind of just across the board, but you know, the idea that people should be eating most of their carbohydrates closer to sleep kind of spits in the face of, of a lot of what we learn is, Oh, don't eat you know, people think, oh, you shouldn't eat carbohydrates late in the day and that sort of thing. But the fact of the matter is you're supposed to rest late in the day or closer to your sleep cycle is when you'd want those carbohydrates. And many people who have trouble sleeping are having trouble sleeping because they're either loading up on high L-tyrosine foods late in the day or they're simply not getting enough high carbohydrate foods. Interesting. Okay. So I want to I wanna pull this thread about, as you know, I want to match up two things here, Andrew. One uh, point number two in the article we wrote, re-engineering the article Preston and I wrote for MCTI, re-engineering your battle rhythm, your your work battle rhythm and your personal battle rhythm on deployment. And I want I want to I want you to have a chance to talk about that um, with respect to the article you and Pat wrote in Fast Company, where you mentioned moving the finish line closer. And here's why, in my own personal experience, it sounds like now that we're understanding that I'm understanding more about the neurobiology of getting serial processing, you know, sort of under control sounds to me a lot like regaining certainty when there's a lot of complexity around me. And I, I've always felt like if I could get on, I mean, it's the same in athletics, right? If I could get on, when I went on deployment, things are so different for lots of different reasons. I felt like the quicker I got on a operating rhythm that I could, that I could live with. And I mean like a 24 hour cycle operating rhythm that I just felt better about everything. And I, and I think what I've learned from you and over the years is getting on an operating rhythm that works for you does a couple of things. It moves the finish line closer and that has a physiological effect. I'll let you talk about that here in a second. It sounds to me like it reduces my serial processing because I've habituated the day. And having heard you speak about this third thing before, it sounds to me like it gets the dopamine reward prediction error under control, but I'll let you tie that all together. So I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on moving the finish line closer, 
has an operating rhythm? Um, has it decreased my serial processing and what that has to do with the dopamine reward prediction error? Well, you're a, you're a keen guy. So you know that the ability to move the horizon is absolutely crucial probably not just to getting through buds, but on uh, more importantly on deployment, right? You know, the ability to say, you know, I'm going to just make it to this mo- this next milestone. And I guess we should clarify for the listeners what I mean by mo- uh, moving the horizon. Yep. Moving the horizon is, is about setting a particular goal line in mind that you control, meaning that the listener controls and limiting one's focus to just that. And so the reason this is so powerful is it's kind of interesting because it, it speaks to the power of the human brain. The, the, you know, the human brain can, can process things in parallel. It can, uh, we can multitask and that's great, but it's also part of the problem. So when we have, you know, a COVID-19 pandemic and we're thinking about how we're going to make it through the day or the morning, we are capable of thinking about how to make it through the day and morning while also thinking about the uncertainty of the larger pandemic and when things are going to end and when things will be back to normal, will they ever be back to normal, the economy, et cetera. We can spin a lot of plates in our mind simultaneously. And that's not a problem. That's actually an asset to humanity, except that it's high burn rate. So when a operator or a first responder or a medical professional is thrown into a situation where it's crisis mode, they need to be able to, A, as we talked about before, accept that this is happening because that's going to limit burn rate. You're not focusing on what isn't, you're focusing on what is. But then setting the horizon to some very manageable goals does a number of things. So it could be, I'm just going to get through the morning, I'm going to get to 10 a.m. It could be just arbitrary, like a time on the clock. It could be, I'm going to deal with these four patients. I'm going to deal with you know the first quarter of this op, whatever it happens to be for, for the individual. Setting that milestone is not to say that your mind won't drift to, oh, well, what about tomorrow? Or what about the next thing? Or what about the 25 other things? Of course, we're all human. The mind drifts. But it's about being able to rein that back in and say, okay, my mind is just going to that other thing, but I'm going to pull my focus back into the, the one goal. And by moving toward that one goal and limiting our focus, setting that horizon, we do a number of things. Just setting the horizon has a positive amplifying effect on these dopaminergic dopamine systems in the brain that we've been discussing just setting a goal. And that's because dopamine is not just a reward molecule. It doesn't just get released in our brain when we hear a good joke or when we reach a milestone in our career with family. Dopamine is involved in the process of pursuit. It's secreted in little bits as we move toward a goal. And it's highly subjective. And nature installed this mechanism in us where we can set goals and move toward them. And the dopamine that's secreted and root to those goals is every bit as valuable as the dopamine we get when we finally reach the, the end point. Maybe more. It actually, the way to think about it is it's sort of like a rocket thruster. It pushes you in a particular direction. And you can see why nature would install a mechanism like this in us. Because if we were hungry or thirsty or looking for a mate, why would we ever continue that as things were challenging? If we, you know, we, at some point we have to know if we're on the right path. Now, I know if we're on the right path, then we get this increased dopamine secretion and it, and it propels us further down that path, right? That, you know, that there's not, it's not Hansel and Gretel where they're little bread crumbs all the way, right? It's, this stuff is 
is being secreted internally. So the breadcrumbs are in our own mind and we have to set those out for ourselves, okay? So it's sort of like following a trail that we set for ourselves. And so when we talk about moving the horizon, what we're saying is, okay, you set a goal, you move to that, and just the setting of the goal, you get a little bit of dopamine release. Just, then you reach that milestone. And even though that milestone, that finish line might not uh, be directly related to the ultimate finish line that you're, that you're seeking to accomplish, right? You know, quashing the pandemic or whatever it is. Even though that's not the case, the dopamine release allows you to then set a new milestone and look to the next finish line and the next finish line. And so this is an extremely powerful mechanism, and it's one that continually replenishes our dopamine. Now, you mentioned reward prediction error. So there's a phenomenon that neurobiologists are very familiar with and that I think most people should understand because it's such an integral part of, of who we are and how we move through long duration and even short duration um, stress and challenge and do it effectively. It's called reward prediction error. So what happens is if I'm moving towards something and I'm just grinding, 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 I've got like no dopamine at all. I'm just pushing myself or even where someone's pushing me to do it. And then I reach the milestone and I get, you know, there's some reward at the end and I'm relieved and I get some dopamine. Fine. That's great. But there's a, the opposite phenomenon is where you've got dopamine and being secreted en route to the goal because perhaps I'm telling myself this is good for me or I'm in control of at least small things. I'm controlling little things. I'm providing support for my team, my family, my coworkers. And then I get dopamine release at the end. If there's a big pulse of dopamine after that trail of dopamine that we're talking about that gets released at each milestone, that has an incredible amplifying effect that leads all the way into the realm of what we call neuroplasticity. The circuits in the brain that allowed that process to happen, the setting of milestones, the moving towards milestones, the reaching of goals through these gradual uh, you know, setting and moving toward different horizons that I set, that solidifies that circuit. It makes it more likely that I'm gonna be able to do that in the future. So this is a skill that we can learn. And it maps directly onto things like growth mindset, which of course is Carol Dweck's great discovery about really generating reward from the effort and sometimes even friction process of reaching. But it's something that everyone has access to, but it needs to be built up, right? Some people do it naturally, but most people need to learn how to do this, where it, they're not just grinding through effort and then reaching the end goal, but you're dosing yourself subjectively with these beliefs that, look, I'm in control because I'm setting milestones. I'm reaching those milestones and therefore my control setting is working. Those milestones are putting me in the general direction that I need to go. And then eventually, because eventually this pandemic will end, it will be successful, the reaching that goal and then the entire circuit, just because of the way that these circuits are wired, gets reinforced so that the next time, if it's not a pandemic or it's a sick kid or it's a, it's a long period of of strain and struggle, or even it's a good thing. You're, 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 you know, running four deadlines in parallel, right? You're able to do this more readily. So move the horizon to a manageable place, reward yeah. yourself sub subjectively for doing that, then reach that place, reward yourself subjectively, and then reset the horizon. It's a, uh, it's just a fascinating concept to me, Andrew, because again, for lots of different reasons, but not the least of which is I learned just this whole concept or the 
the neurobiology of it, you know, way late in my life. And now uh, Bridget and I talk to our boys, 17, 14 and 10 year old boys a lot. And we mean this, we don't, we don't care about the letter grade that you get. The letter grade is irrelevant to the process and the effort along the way. And frankly, uh, admittedly, I don't think I would have ever used that type of language had I not read Carol Dweck's research. And because we can't see a picture of the mind and we can't see the neuroplasticity happening in the mind, we, we almost sort of learn this stuff along the way by accident. You know, I know, you know, in all the work that we all do, lots of very high level professional division one athletic coaches in there obsessed with the process of preparation, not the score for obvious reasons, you know, to many athletes is that lots of things go into what happens on the scoreboard. Of course, of course you want to do the best you can, but they beat this drum on the process, the process, the process. And my sense is if we stick to the process and we move the horizon closer to us and we reward ourselves subjectively, which sometimes, and I'd like for you to talk about this next sentence here in a minute, when we reward ourselves subjectively, sometimes it feels like empty, positive self-talk, which I don't think is a great skill. And, and that's hard to do. But I think if, again, if we, if we move the finish line and we, and we reward ourselves subjectively, like you said, we're building a dopamine pathway along the way. Before we get to positive self-talk, just for the, for the audience as well, there's a book written by a neuroscientist Antonio Damasio called The Strange Order of Things, subtitled Life, Feeling, and the Making of Cultures. He, of course, he also wrote um, Descartes' Error. But the reason I bring up that book title, which, of course, we'll put in the show notes, is because in Antonio Damasio's book, The Strange Order of Things, he discusses how subjectivity and the integration of experience builds the pathways, you know, in our brains. And so if we could take a tributary on positive self-talk and if it's actually positive or not, Andrew, if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I have a lot of conversations with Carol. She, we meet periodically in her office to chat. Our offices are a couple hundred meters from one another. And um, and she says it best. She said, you know, if your positive self-talk is in relation to the end goal, you're probably delusional, right? If you're sitting there, you know, you're not performing well and you're saying I'm performing well, that's delusional. If you, um, you know, if you're losing and you tell yourself you're winning, that's delusional because it's in relation to the final, the final assessment. Where positive self-talk becomes useful and can actually support these milestone setting and dopamine reward systems in a real and meaningful way is when your positive self-talk is only in relation to that immediate horizon that you're setting. So what you what you do is you set the horizon and then when you you make it manageable something that you can control and you reach that milestone, that horizon, and then you subjectively reward yourself and you tell yourself that you can at least control the horizons and the reaching of those horizons, then you're set because that's the dope. The dopamine release system doesn't care whether or not something's in relation to an immediate goal or a more long-term goal. But if you set your immediate behavior to the long-term goal, you're also, you know, you're not crazy. You're not an idiot. You're not delusional. You're not going to be able to get that dopamine release because the dopamine release is aware if there is such a thing. You're aware that, okay, just getting through breakfast in the morning and getting into your car and getting to the hospital, that's not the equivalent of getting out of this whole pandemic mess. 
But if you can reward just those three steps of, you know, get getting out the door into the hospital, then you will then be able to more positively lean into the next horizon that you set. So it, it's very simple in the end. In addition to setting horizons that are close enough in and manageable that you can accomplish them, keep your rewards for those close enough in and manageable that they're real, that they're not just realistic, they're real. They're every bit as real as anything else in your physical universe, right? So the positive self-talk has never been constrained. People talk about positive self-talk, but it's like, you know, I, I meet people on the street every once in a while, you know, crazy people who are telling me that there's somebody that they're not. And, um, and sometimes it sounds like positive self-talk to me, right? So positive self-talk, as long as it's tacked to a reality that you control, it's going to work for you. As long as it's tacked to something that's much larger than, uh, than what you can control in that moment, well, then it's going to probably have the opposite effect. So we've never, as a, as a, as a field of neuroscience and psychology and, and all the various fields that, that refer to positive self-talk, we've never constrained it in time and in space. We need to, we need to set some constraints around it. So that's what, I've been, uh, that's what I just attempted to do. Thanks for that. I agree. I mean, I think it's good to say, you know, we'll make it through this, but you know, when you're on combat action deployment overseas for us, just like I think healthcare workers are essentially on, essentially on a combat deployment here domestically today, you don't manage your four, five, six, seven months deployment by saying, we'll make it through this. You manage your month long deployment by building systematic battle rhythms and presumably reducing you know, serial processing and essentially getting, doing things in 24 hour increments is, is how I think about it. Um, we covered this ground a little bit. I want to move to the third point in the article, uh, what it's actually like on deployment, where I say, do something for your body and mind every day. I think we don't have to recover all this ground, but I, I do want to give you a chance to talk about energy management, blood sugar, habenula, insulin spikes, as it relates to all the things we've discussed already, if you think, if you think that's relevant. Yeah. So, you know, I, I realize that um, a lot of people who are listening to this might not be in total control of their schedule. So some of this won't pertain to them, but uh, I'll, I promise to bring it around so that it, it does because it gets us some core, uh, core biological functions, which is, you know, we were designed to be awake during the day and asleep at night. And, um, we have systems in the brain that reward us for doing that. You know, if you're getting a lot of light in your eyes during the day and you're in a dark, uh, dark environment at night and sleeping, um, you appropriately balance all these neurochemicals that we've been talking about. And then there's this area of the brain called the habenula, which is, that's H-A-B-E-N-U-L-A. And it's actually a, an area of the brain that's involved in, in punishment. It actually punishes us for taking on the wrong behaviors. A lot of different um, brain circuits funnel into the habenula. But one of the ones I use as an example is, you know, if, we're, if you're up in the middle of the night a lot, the light that triggers activation of the eye, then triggers activation of the habenula, kicks out a, a what's called a punishment signal. It reduces dopamine um, and it increases the secretion of other neurochemicals that uh, tend to de deplete us a little bit more quickly. Um, the habenula is interesting structure because it's linked to the pancreas, which of course controls insulin management, uh, insulin production management, and blood sugar. And so a lot of people that are, are nocturnal or up in the middle of the night can sometimes get blood sugar issues. There are ways that one can ameliorate that if you're forced to be nocturnal or on shift work, of course. Um, the main ones are keeping a regular schedule. So, you know, my friend Samar Hattar at the National Institutes of Mental Health has done a lot of work on this. 
showing that, okay, it, it's ideal to be awake during the day and asleep at night. And if you do that, blood sugar management is optimized and mood is optimized. But if you can't do that, there are a couple things that can override this habenuleta pancreas pathway and this so-called pro-depressive circuit. And I don't think I've talked about this stuff publicly yet. So um, I'm excited to share this. So it turns out that if, if you get into a a rhythm, and you see this in animals and you see it in human studies, if you put activity at the same time of day each day, so for a mouse on in a laboratory, this would be running on a treadmill. If this is, um, for a human, it could be aerobic exercise, it could be resistance exercise, could be, could be swimming, could be, could be anything of that sort. By putting that onto a regular schedule, you generate activation of brain areas that essentially blunt this negative effect of the habenula pro-depressive circuit, the one that throws off blood sugar. So what this means is getting activity at more or less the same time of day every day will tend to bring regularity to us to physiological regularity, despite the fact that your schedule is highly irregular. And it goes a step further in a way that's, that's just really powerful, which is the, there's a phenomenon. Um, I don't know if any of your listeners are into circadian biology and you know circadian rhythm stuff. We could do something in the future, perhaps, to talk about this. There's something called a skeleton photo period. What does that means is um, it's not sinister. What it means is that we can organize our rhythms to light, which is the most powerful way to do that. But when light isn't a good cue, like you're awake some days in the middle of the or you're awake in the middle of the nights a lot, or you're um, you're working the swing shift, or just you're you're suddenly nocturnal when you haven't been nocturnal for months before. When you get into that mode, the body starts looking for other things to anchor to, and the two things that it really likes to anchor to are activity, meaning exercise, and feeding. If your if your sleep wake cycle and your light cycle is thrown off, you really want to try and get onto a regular schedule of eating and a regular schedule of exercise. And people always ask me, do you mean that even if you're not getting, if you have to compromise sleep in order to do it? And I have to say, yes, even, even if you have to give up an hour of sleep, it's actually going to be better for you overall because the body and all its systems want to anchor to something. They want to know when to secrete cortisol, when to secrete melatonin, which promotes the you know, transition to sleep, when to secrete dopamine, when to secrete noradrenaline, in, how, in what amounts. Remember, your nervous system is encased, your brain and spinal cord and all its connections are encased in your skin. It has no knowledge of what's going on in the outside world except what you see and what you hear. And when you, when you start taking away some of that and it becomes very chaotic, like um, you know, I see sunlight, then I'm going to sleep as the sun is coming up and you know, all this kind of stuff, your body is going to start to look for regularities. It wants to anchor to something. So exercise and food are second and third in line to sunlight. But given that a lot of the people listening to this probably can't anchor to sunlight, you know, everyone of course would love to get up early and go to sleep early and sleep all night. But if you can't do that, anchor to exercise, anchor to food schedules. I mean, the most powerful thing for me, Andrew, of course, as you know, you know, as soon as we go on quote unquote deployment, we go immediately onto the vampire schedule and we operate at night and we sleep during the day. So we couldn't throw we couldn't throw our light schedule off anymore, even if we tried. But the exciting thing here is whether you're at home or on the front lines of medicine or actually on a real deployment, there's a circadian rhythmic type of way that we actually have some agency in resetting our hormonal balance. And I think that's exciting because there, there is something we can do. I, I worry 
in situations like this for either general listeners at home or, of course, worry about our teammates on the front lines that, and this happens on deployment, it's happened to me, we can sometimes just get caught up in the, the melancholy or the inertia of the deployment day after day and not really take control of those 24-hour rhythms. And it's exciting to know that there are things that we can do. Yeah. And for, and for people that, you know, these are not mild effects. I, I just want to emphasize this. I, the skeleton photo period, is, that's for whatever reason it's called that. It's just when you can't, when light information isn't reliable as a cue for your body and your mind, you want to grab onto that. You want to grab onto food and exercise because it's, that's why they say it sets a skeleton to, to, to link to, to kind of anchor the rest of the, the flesh of the system. That's, I think, why that name was put forth. But I think that it's such a powerful mode of controlling our biology. Remember, you know, your heart rhythms, your breathing rhythms, your liver's rhythms, your brain, they're all connected. Spleen, your hormone testosterone production um, for the ladies, estrogen produ uh, production, all of that is rhythmic, right? It was all designed to be rhythmic. And so when you anchor to these things, light, exercise and sleep, you, you have a, a much better time dealing with any negative things that come your way, including, you know, small Ill illnesses that crop up or larger illnesses, God forbid, wound healing is faster. Cognitive processing is faster. Recovery from workouts is faster. Recovery from everything is faster because your biology, your system is, is walled off from the world. It, it only knows what what's happening internally, which is kind of weird to think about, but you know, your nervous system and your, you only know what's, what's happening out in the world because of the, these chemicals and the signals that are sent after life events make their way into your body, meaning in the form of electrical signals and chemical signals, because that's the language of the nervous system, you know, that it's trying to figure out regularities on its own, where are the rhythms, what's happening, when do they tend to happen? And it's all about preparedness. It's all about having those norepinephrine ready, but not through the roof, dopamine available to buffer that serotonin so that you can recover and rest. These are the systems, the major systems that allow us to lean in continually and to actually not just perform well, but to perform well in a way that's not depleting, but actually can be amplified. These are, these are very, very powerful mechanisms. Andrew, there's a, there's a director of sports science for a professional athletic team that we do some work with. And this, this surprised me, but didn't surprise me. This is the thing I'm going to describe here in a second in terms of activity and maintaining rhythms. It made sense when I asked him about it, but I was surprised to see after a, a professional athletic event, um, some of the players who clearly are carrying a lot of, you can correct me here, noradrenaline and other hormones into a game. And if some of the players just for rotational reasons don't play enough minutes, as soon as the game is over, they do a pretty high intensity physical workout, weights, bicycles, all kinds of, you know, kettlebells and this kind of thing. And I asked him, you know, after a game, another, another workout. And he said, well, if some of the guys haven't played enough minutes, we want to make sure they can offload any residue of, you know, hormones or chemicals in the system so that their activity levels are on the right rhythm. Does that sound uh, yeah, in line no. with what you're describing? Yeah, it's really interesting. It's the first time I've ever heard of that. Um, very interesting. Yeah, I was thinking as you were as you were saying that, you know, if you've ever, well, well, we've all seen, you know, like the end of the Super Bowl, right, or a big game, you know, these are people, they just, they just went max output, right. max output. And they're jumping up and down. I mean, look at how much energy they have. That's just to sort of highlight, that's dopamine. 
Okay. Now the losing team is going to feel depleted and exhausted, right? That's right there. That's the difference between epinephrine. Both teams are at max output. I have to believe that. But you look at the winners and they, they suddenly have all this energy again. Well, where'd it come from? It didn't come from more glucose stores. It didn't come from big increase in hormone. It came from dopamine pushing back that adrenaline. Suddenly you have energy for days. So when you give this example of folks that didn't get enough playtime, having a lot of built up noradrenaline, they've, yeah, they've trained for that to have that ready. And in order to get them back on a regular sleep rhythm, they're going to want to burn that off. I know this. I mean, he's an old dog now, but I have, I got a bulldog that when he was younger, if he didn't charge, I mean, just sprint for 10 minutes a day, of course he's a bulldog. So he's yeah, exactly. If he didn't do that, he was up all night and I'm thinking, I don't get it. But if he, if he could burn that off, then he would sleep like crazy. So we build up these capacities and they, we get set to a new level. And so that makes really good sense that they'd want to burn that off. That's very smart thinking on their part. Yeah. What I love about the, the sports community and the, and the military communities and the first is that there's this kind of unconscious genius to it. Like I look at everything through the lens of a neuroscientist, of course, but they've really been teasing out these neurochemical systems, I think, for many decades. It's really quite, quite And coming from the other direction, right? Obviously, it's behavioral testing. Is this working? Is that working? How do I feel? How do I not feel? I think the work that you're doing, lots of your colleagues and, and other people that, you know, we interact with are now putting the science behind it, which certainly helps with the behavioral side as well, which takes me to this fourth point that I, that I put in the paper, be aggressive rather than passive when you're on deployment. And again, this was experiential for me, Andrew, of course, until you and Pat talked about taking action when you're in, wrote the article in Fast Company, you talked about taking action. And of course, your colleague, uh, Robert Sapolsky's book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, on page 314 of that book, he discusses how primates, of course, he's a, he's a primatologist, uh, primates with the lowest basal glucocorticoid levels, which you can explain, have four tendencies. And one of those tendencies I noticed just preparing for this, I was, I was flipping back through my notes from his book, was that those primates with those low levels of, you know, glucocorticoids, one of the things they do is they, they always take the initiative. And again, I wanted to have this conversation about sometimes a rapidly changing environment can be scary. The uncertainty can be scary. We can get consumed or whipped up into just a momentum of how new a situation can be, but really, uh, and we don't want to be on our back foot. I think we want to be on our front, on our front foot and taking the initiative, so to speak. And, and I just wanted to speak about that. Yeah. You know, this is um, a topic that's very near and dear to my heart and my lab's heart, because I'll just briefly describe a study. I don't want to get too bogged down in the, in the weeds. Yeah, of, go uh, for it. Science in the lab. But, you know, in 2018, a, a graduate student in my lab, uh, Lindsay Soleil, published a paper in, in Nature showing that there are really three responses to fear and threat. And one is to, we could call it the freeze response, but a lot of times people think of kind of paralyzed freezing. It's more just a pause response is the way I'm, I'm working that. The, the other is a kind of as a retreat response, be on your back foot, back on your heels, these kinds of things. And the third response was forward movement, literally just walking for, in the case of an animal study, but also in human studies that, that we and others have done, forward movement. Now, in an intelligent way, of course, right? You, one wouldn't want to be um, foolish in, in putting themselves in excessive danger. But forward movement in the face of what 
internally we feel as anxiety and stress, translated the stress response into a positive, rewarding feeling. Now, this is not subjective. What she found was there's a brain area that when animals or people move forward under stress, and this could be related to setting the horizon and, and moving forward toward anything, but any forward movement, walking, running, setting a particular goal, moving toward that goal, triggered activation of a dopamine circuit that then made that behavior rewarding over time. So that moving forward in stress actually became not just reflexive, but the attractive response. And this for us was tremendous because we hear these phrases like fear and courage and stress and anxiety. But what she had essentially found was what most people call a kind of courage circuit. It was, again, I'm not military, but we think of courage as being completely stoic and calm in the face of stress. But actually that probably only explains some courage events. I have to guess that some courage events have to do with high levels of activation, even if you want to be there, right? High levels of internal arousal, as we would say, your heart rate's going, your breathing's going, you're totally focused on a goal and you move forward. Nature has, has installed in all of us circuitry that rewards moving forward under those circumstances. And again, it brings us to this idea that these neurochemical systems are built into us for the specific purpose of moving forward in stress. It's what have allowed our species to evolve. And under no circumstances do we think that the glucocorticoids, which are things like adrenaline and cortisol and things of that sort um, that Robert wrote about so beautifully in his books, under no circumstances do we think those things aren't there. They're all there. What it means is that the, the courageous act, the forward action, it's happening on a backdrop of high levels of cortisol and noradrenaline. Mm -hmm. But through forward movement, we're able to capture the, the activation of these other pathways, in particular the dopamine pathway. And so there's some real science now to tack, tack to that. And so when we, you say, you know, they're the primates that take action, or in the article that Dossett and I co-wrote, you know, really thinking about how you can support someone, a neighbor, a spouse, a friend, in whatever form during this pandemic, or a coworker, in taking action, you start to activate these, these circuits that are directly linked to forward action, to forward stepping, despite, not in spite of, but despite the fact that there's stress there, that there's high levels of cortisol, you're moving forward, and that then buffers the cortisol. Which takes us nicely um, into the last, at least the last point in our paper. We can, we can talk about a number of things and go, go as long as we want, frankly, but I just want to make sure people can follow here is... This is just, you know, I think something we all learn. Uh, I had one buddy just the other day on another thing we were doing say that team cohesion is shared suffering and humor, you know, mixed into one, which I, I tend to agree with him almost entirely. I think there's probably a little bit more to it, but he makes a great point. But I wrote about this, you know, when you're quote unquote on deployment, it's really important, obviously, to take care of your teammates. And there's a, there's a great book it was really just a collection of classes that a German army officer named Captain Adolf von Schell, he was a captain in 1931. He had served all over the European theater in World War I, and he came, he was brought to the U.S. to the Army Infantry School in Fort Benning, Georgia, because at the time there were zero officers in the U.S. military, frankly, that had his kind of ground infantry combat experience. And in battle leadership, Captain Adolf von Schell said that the characteristics of an individual in peace 
are completely changed in war. Each minute of battle brings with it a new assault on the nerves. Each person reacts differently at different times and must be handled each time according to their particular reaction. And it just reminds me that, you know, obviously we're all different and you see wildly different reactions in stressful situations. And what that tells me is not, oh, that person's good at dealing with stress and, oh, that person's bad at dealing with stress and we keep the good person and we don't keep the bad person. It's more about look out closely for your teammates in situations like this because everybody's going to react a lot differently when their nerves get tested. I know there's a lot of anthropological and cultural reasons for that, but I just wanted wanted to obviously to have you unpack that so you could talk about you could talk about taking care of your teammates and you could talk about tachykinin and isolation and and all the the uh, the neurobiology around that topic. I'm guessing some of your listeners may have heard of things like oxytocin and yep. we talked a little bit about serotonin before. So serotonin and oxytocin are kind of partners in our body and brain in these are chemicals that uh, give us that uh, feel good sense um, that they do relate to social bonding. Serotonin is secreted when you eat a good meal and you're, you're full and sleepy. Um, these kinds of things. Now, oxytocin is most often discussed in the media as, oh, you know, when you hold your child or when you are with your partner, um, but it actually is involved in a lot more than that. You know, the, the nervous system is, um, it's very sophisticated in the number of things it can do, but it's not very sophisticated in the ways that it does it. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, bonding with teammates is reflective of the same chemicals. It's caused by the same chemicals as bonding to your, your significant other or to your kids, believe it or not. Now, of course, those relationships differ, but the neurochemical basis is the same. So when there's trust in a group and when people feel supported, serotonin and oxytocin get secreted. And that tends to make people feel good, and no surprise there. But some other really important things happen. First of all, they tend to calm the nervous system. In the absence of serotonin and oxytocin, anxiety is much more likely. Fear, this has been measured in laboratories. Fear responses actually come about more easily. There's something in the laboratory you can measure called pre-pulse startle, which is basically how jumpy somebody is. You know, there, you have some co-workers who maybe walk up behind them and you go, hey, and they just about jump out of their seat and other people just kind of swing around quietly and, and say, how you doing? You know, we all differ in terms of how, how much pre-pulse startle we have, but you can measure some of this and it varies when people are anxious. Obviously, they have more pre-pulse startle. So serotonin and oxytocin actually buffle, buffer excuse me, pre-pulse startle. In addition, when group cohesion is high, when people feel supported, a particular molecule called tachykinin is suppressed. As I mentioned before, Mother Nature is, she's very um, elegant, but she's very diabolical too. She rewards us with things like do dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, but she's got punishment systems too, like the habenula we talked about before. And tachykinin is part of that punishment system. Mm. When, we, when we are isolated, when we don't feel trust, tachykinin is secreted and tachykinin triggers activation of the amygdala, a threat detection center in the brain, as well as lowering our immunity. You know, the fact that people who are in isolation and don't feel supported get sick and die more quickly when they're dealing with cancer treatment and things like that is a very real thing. And this probably harkens back to deep roots of our evolutionary biology where we needed chemical systems 
to reinforce bonds because there was so much more uh, stability in cultures, env environments, families, and so forth, where people could exist in, in proximity, right? We aren't, we're not spread out. Like I think about an animal like the wolverine, which they basically only get together to mate. Other than that, they're basically on their own their entire lives. Incidentally, they're very, they're very angry animals. But human beings, despite our ability to generate aggression in, when we need to, generally want to have both these systems supported. And when I say both these systems, what I mean is in the last hour or so, we've talked about a lean-in hard system, the, the noradrenaline system, the dopamine system, which rewards us and allows us to buffer against that somewhat, but it's still a feel-good outward facing, like what's out there, set the horizon, what's the goal, moving forward, churn through this, really just get, keep moving, moving, moving forward. And then we have another system, which is the serotonin oxytocin system, which is more geared toward feeling good with what we have in our immediate environment. Mm -hmm. So when you say a team that's suffering together is gonna, you're gonna have high cohesion, you know, the team has everything that it needs just by being together. And this is one thing I really wanna emphasize is that Things like serotonin, oxytocin, and discussions of things like gratitude sometimes send people off in a direction where they go, oh, you know, that all just sounds like navel-gazing. It sounds a little too fuzzy. But people should be very careful about adopting that mindset and for the following reason. Gratitude is not complacency. Appreciation is not complacency. And I, can, and I mean that in a neurochemical sense. When we feel gratitude or we feel trust or we feel like despite our stress, there are reinforcements around us that could support us. We get the secretion of things like serotonin, oxytocin, we get suppression of this negative chemical tachykinin, and there's also an increase in some of these chemicals like dopamine. What it does is it restores our ability to be outward facing again, to say, mm -hmm. you know what, I've got all the resources I need to be able to look out into my environment and now go seek new resources, even if that requires effort. So there's this really, I don't know if, I don't know Eastern philosophy, so I don't really follow yin yang. I'll probably get it backwards or wrong, wrong altogether if I attempt it. But there is this balance that we have inside us of needing to get rewards from what's in our immediate environment and for which we don't have to go far. We don't have to wander. We don't have to put much effort. We don't have to look out into the world and go pursue things. And then there are neurochemical systems and circuits in our brain, literally cells in our body and brain that support the seeking and pursuit. And those two things aren't supposed to work completely independently of one another. They're supposed to toggle back and forth. So when you get a bunch of people together who are you know, bonding, maybe it's over a win, maybe it's over a challenge, doesn't, it doesn't really matter. What you're building up is the reinforcements to be able to lean back into effort and strain again. Mm -hmm. So if anything, I'd like to just kind of um, create a framework for your listeners where these systems are always toggling back and forth. And when you support a teammate or when they support you, the warmth that you feel or the, the feeling that there's a buffer, that there's a space within which if anxiety hit or if strain hit or if a personal problem back home hit, knowing that you have something to lean to should you need it itself creates a, a, a kind of buoyancy. And so that's why for those of us that are in a position where we can do things for others, doing things for others and supporting others is indeed, you know, the whole rise, you know, the rising tides raise all yep. boats. Indeed, that's true. And it's, but it's true, not just as like a meme or a metaphor. 
It's true at a neurochemical, at a neurobiological level, and it's actually true at a hormonal level. We haven't talked much about hormones, but hormones are slow acting, not like neurochemicals. They, hormones act on, on the time scale of like days, weeks, and months. And when you do that, you know, you build in male groups, it tends to be the testosterone of the group, you know? And so when you feel that, that positive clan behavior and you're like, we are, we are powerful, that's a real thing. It is not, it's a real chemical thing. And when people get, you know, do things that get in the way of group uh, cohesion, it has the opposite effect. But when people do things, however small, to support the group on small levels, like grabbing a cup of coffee for somebody else when you're going to sit down, not just your own, there's something powerful that happens there. And it has outscale, outsized effects. You can feel it and see it in all teams, but you can see it. It's like a bright shining star in athletic teams or business teams where if the team doesn't have, you know, this is a loose term, but high cohesion, they tend to look inward and just self-preserve in a way. But as you just described, Andrew, if it, this serotonin, oxytocin, this, this buffering against, you know, a chemical like tachykinin gives us the ability to be more outward facing, we've almost found yet another way in supporting our teammates from a hormonal and chemical level to release more serial, serial processing to use your term. But in my thinking, it's just like, I don't have to worry about that part of my life because I know my team is with me and I can do something else that's more productive. Can you, can you just add a note for everybody? And I know you could spend two hours on this next topic that I'm about to tee up here. But since we talked about the, the, the chemical, you know, valence, so to speak, to also to be able to be more outward facing, can you just note this idea that the brain, for the most part, can only really focus on two things. Yeah. So if anyone says multitasking is impossible, they're totally wrong. Um, but it's, it does have some constraints. It's not limitless. So um, all we are what's called old world primates, um, meaning we share enough DNA with primates that basically originated in Africa. And all old world primates, unlike other primates, can attend to two things at the same time, okay? So this isn't an argument for evolution. This is just the facts that great apes can do this, chimpanzees can do this, and we can do this, but your dog can't do this, and those little monkeys that are running around in Brazil can't do this. They're new world monkeys. And incidentally, they're very skittish. If you look at new world monkeys, they're kind of moving their head all the time. Old world primates like us can sit still. We can focus on something and we can attend to something else while we're focusing on that. So for instance, I can be in conversation with you, Coleman. I can look you in the eye. And if I want to attend to something in the corner of the room, because I see movement or I want to look over there, I can do that without moving my eyes. So it's something called covert attention. And it's a very powerful mechanism where we can split our attention. Now, as far as we know, we can only split our attention to two places in space. So we can't see three things at once. We can dilate our vision. We can make it broader. We can make it narrower. But we can split our attention to two places, not three. But we can also bring our attention to one place, right? Just because we can split it to two places doesn't mean I can't be completely focused on a conversation we're having. We're in direct eye contact and then just it's one focus of attention. So we have this capacity for one focus of attention or two focus uh, points of attention, 
in space, literally around us, not outer space, but around us. I guess if any astronauts are, are listening to this, this would be the only podcast where this statement wouldn't work. If you're in <laughs> outer space, then it's true. Um, but for most of us that won't go to outer space, just in the environment around us. So the other thing that's remarkable about the human brain is that it can move its focus to two points in time. So I can focus on the present and the past. I can focus on the present and the future. I can focus all on the future, all on the present, or all on the past. But I can't concentrate on the present, past, and future all at once. And it's not a coincidence that coincidence, excuse me, that I can focus on two places in space at once, but no more, or two places in time at once and no more. And that's because space and time in the brain are linked. And what I mean by this is uh, I can give a concrete example. So if you are fixing something very small, think of your a watchmaker or somebody fixing a watch and peering in at a very small um, uh, location in space, and all my attention is right there. My perception of time is also narrowed. I'm actually looking at how things move over a shorter range, and movement itself is the distance traveled over time. Okay. Whereas if I dilate my vision, I look at everything broadly in my visual scene, I'm actually chunking time more broadly. Okay. So if a bird flies across the horizon, I'm not looking at each flap of its wings necessarily, unless it's flapping very slowly. I'm not looking at it in little tiny increments. My visual system now translates to a way in which I'm binning things in time. It's almost like the seconds hand is moving further like a, or a bigger clock. So our, our ability to attend to different places in space is linked to our ability to focus on different things in time. And this is fundamentally important for how we move through challenge. Because when we talk about uncertainty or we talk about a challenge in navigating high stress issue or a high stress regime of, of unknown time frame, what we need to do is we need to anchor the way that our brain is processing time. And the way to do that is by anchoring it in space. This is why setting the horizon on manageable, controllable goals will move that time perception into a mode that feels reasonable. Now, what I mean by this is when our perception of space and our perception of time are well-matched, we tend to reduce our stress. When we start to try and think about how to eat the whole elephant, like how are we gonna get through this pandemic and how does that relate to what I'm doing now? That's when we start getting into modes of thinking that are along the lines of, well, okay, you know, Coleman and Andrew are telling me to move the horizon and to set these things, but how is making my coffee going to deal with the pandemic? What you're doing is you're, you're, you're splitting your attention over two things that don't jive, right? They're not linked up in, in the appropriate way. What we need to do is realize, okay, I can perceive things at two places. So yes, it's reasonable for me to think about the future as well as the present. However, I'm going to anchor 100% of my actions to my present. Obviously, I can't anchor, you know, I can't control the future except what's in my immediate control. But that's a lot easier to say than to do. So if you have trouble doing that, the key is to move your visual focus in, literally setting targets with your visual system and moving towards those targets, making those milestones that tangible, that email, that uh, I don't know the work of, you know, seeing that number of patients moving down that hall, getting to that point. And when you start using visual goal lines, the brain just naturally pulls its time analysis. It's the way that it's measuring time into sync with that, what we call space analysis, but with the visual system. 
and things start to feel more manageable. And all of a sudden, it's like we, I don't like to use the word flow because it's a little bit unclear yeah. what that means. But all of a sudden, we start to feel like we're in flow. We start to feel like we can manage things. And then we start to feel like we can reach modes of high performance. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes it makes sense. To, I mean, it wouldn't have made sense to me 15 years ago. I know it makes sense to the audience uh, because I know the folks that I've talked with and the and most of the groups that we move around with, these types of things come up. I will say, Andrew, that's probably your description there is probably the most, at least to me, it's the most advanced and not the clearest thing to actually grasp, you know, immediately when you first hear it that we've talked about today. But yeah. I want to add one one note to this because because the book was so impactful to me. Bessel, Dr. Bessel Vanderkolk's research in The Body Keeps the Score brain, mind, and body in the healing of trauma. It, he has a section somewhere between pages 55 and, and 101, I think, where he talks about the thalamus as the cook, the amygdala as the smoke detector, the medial prefrontal cortex as the watchtower, and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex as the timekeeper. And this was the big aha moment for me when I first read this. The thalamus as the cook, I understood. It collects all the sensory input that we experience in any given event. And the body just obviously naturally does this. The amygdala is the smoke detector telling us, you know, threat, no threat. The, uh, the medial prefrontal cortex being the watchtower, kind of trying to gather all these signals and say, you know, put these things into context. But in, in your first firefight overseas or your first gunfight, the first time you have to be on the front lines of a healthcare crisis like this, the first time your boss yells at you, the first time you have to do emergency procedure in an airplane, the first time you experience something that's so impactful that it's outside of quote unquote, you know, time and space. This was, you know, this is Coleman Ruiz's guess. What's going on, and hopefully you can help, what's going on is the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the timekeeper can't relate. It doesn't, it doesn't have a past to relate to, and it doesn't have a future to project to. And so, of course, when I was an instructor in BUDS and students were entering Hell Week, I would watch all these, you know, young kids quit in the middle of Hell Week or early in Hell Week, and it frustrated me. And I didn't really have a way to explain, not that this would have done the trick or anything, but what I, what I always try to put into context now that I know better is we want to try to have a little bit of a resistance tolerance against the situation that's so complex and uncertain because the only thing really happening is our, is our timekeeper is off. And are there ways, I'm always asking myself, even in situations where I'm uncomfortable, are there ways that I can get control of my timekeeper? And if I can do that, and for me, it's normally in 24-hour increments, which I've mentioned a few times in the conversation, through as tight of a battle rhythm as I can control and by way of like really tactical example, I try to do a foam roller in the morning, get a stretch. I, like you said, a coffee routine, you know, workout during the day, all those normal things that sound, you know, silly because they're so basic. Well, I guess what I'm trying to do is get control of my timekeeper. Exactly. And thank you for putting concrete examples and clarity to it because I realized my description was a little bit abstract. It's a, it's a, it's not a, it's not a trivial concept and it, it is sort of like right at the front edge of where neuroscience is now. Like, you know, one, one exit, but the way you describe it is exactly right. You know, the, 
there, in those modes of the first time of doing something, you don't have a reference scheme. So you don't have a lot to uh, map your experience to. You know, one thing is when we're in stress, let's say you're waiting for a test result that's really critical or you're in high stress, time seems like it can go on forever. But we also know that when we're really go, 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 time can fly by. Okay, so one way, you know, so time perception is, is a complicated one. It's very elastic. The two, let's use two extremes though. When I'm very focused on something, I'm going to slice time very finely. And it, that is associated with high alertness. It doesn't have to be stress, but high alertness. In sleep, space and time are very fluid. Like if this was a dream, you know, my dog could go floating through the screen and you could show up here next to me. We'd be, we'd, you know, we go for a run. That would all be fine in a dream because in sleep, space and time are very fluid. The, in the more of these sort of setting the horizon type events that we're doing, or we're planning or serial processing or moving through our days in ways where we have to be very deliberate and very focused, the more of these neural resources, these, what I was calling burn, you know, our burn rates higher, our neural resources that we're using. And they're restored in sleep in this mode where space and time are very fluid. So having a period of time each day where space and time can be fluid outside of sleep, so that could be yoga nidra, could be, you know, if, if one is lucky enough to have one of these flotation tanks, that's awesome, but most people don't have that. Um, sauna, a long run, where time becomes a little bit, um, uh, it becomes untethered, like it feels like it's kind of drifting, even a nap. These are tremendously restorative behaviors because they allow us to then reset what I call the tether, the ability to say, okay, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this. And when you set things to a 24 hour schedule, what's really nice about that is a, that's what we were designed. We are circadian animals. Circadian just means about 24. We were designed to, we are linked to the spin of the earth uh, facing the sun and away from the sun each day. That's like, you know, there's no question about that. When you link to that, a lot of the systems in your body that are involved in hormone secretion, neurochemical secretion, thinking, planning, and doing become they entrain to the what we call entrain to the same rhythm. And then within that 24-hour cycle, to the extent that you can get periods of, you know, where you're not staring into a small box, or you can get some uh, you know, closed-eye relaxation, or maybe even something like yoga nidra, that will untether the space-time relationship somewhat. And then, which will allow you to then retether that in a very functional way when you step back into the demands of life. Reminds me a lot of being in seer school, stuffed in a box, you know, for 30 hours, of course, being brought in and out of that box for aggressive interviewing, but there's a hood on your head when they move you from location to location. So the only thing you see is pitch black in the box. And then you see the interview room and I don't know how long it takes, Andrew, but at some point in the 30 hours, you completely forget if you've been there for a day or a week. <laughs> it, it's so interesting because one way that we stress people in our lab is we put them into virtual claustrophobic environments. Not letting people see at a distance is one of the most powerful ways to stress the nervous system. And in part, that stress is because of this um, disruption of time perception. So without going down really deep uh, down the rabbit hole of time perception and vision and their links to one another. Um, what you just described is a perfect example. If you can't see far pretty soon, those time perception mechanisms start to free run as they're called. Mm. And then, then they become totally discombobulated. So minutes becomes become hours, but then they become seconds. 
And so it's, it's a, so this, I'm guessing, I forget what you called it, but it, so this is basically torture training. Is that what it is? Interrogation Wait, torture um, training? Yeah. Interrogation training, not, not torture. Training. Got it. Got it. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> sounds like torture. Yeah, um, it kind of is training. metaphorically speaking, yeah. torture training. Yeah. Exactly. You know, periods of, of time distortion, like sleep are, are wonderfully restorative. Um, periods of time distortion where we're not in control of that time distortion are, are definitely disruptive. So, uh, uh, like I said, the, the, the Navy and the other branches of the military clearly have um, developed through an unconscious genius, maybe it was a conscious genius, tools that tap into the deepest core of our biological machinery in order to tease out the individuals that are prepared for that kind of work. Let's drive to the finish line here, Andrew. Um, I want to move into the, you know, the recommendations, which we've made a bunch along the way. Maybe we just use it as a summary. As Preston and I always say, you know, what can people do on Monday? And so there's one more piece of neurobiology that's heavily linked to our anatomy that I want you to start with in terms of what can people do on Monday? And then we can go through a series of summary or recommendations that you think are the most important. But the first thing, and then I'd like to get, you know, for the audience, a book recommendation from your recent articles or something that's readable that we haven't already talked about that you think is useful to people. But the first thing because you've done so much on breathing as well, and it's such in the zeitgeist today, but I, but I want to demystify it here. I want you to talk about how the diaphragm is linked to our system in a meaningful way in terms of, because I know you don't like, and I don't either the term, you know, just breath work. I want to talk about the, the neurobiology of the diaphragm and breathing and why that's important. And then we'll make a couple of other, you know, recommendations. What can people do on Monday? Yeah. So um, thanks for bringing this up. So, you know, my lab is very actively involved now in studying how respiration, breathing can impact states of mind. And we approach this from a completely non-mystical, non-trademark name. So you're not going to hear me talk about things like Kundalini, uh, Wim Hof, Tumo breathing. Not because I, I think those, all those groups and people are pioneers and have done really interesting stuff, but I'm interested in, in neurochemically and physiologically how respiration impacts the nervous system. So why respiration? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, we can think of respiration and breathing as, as kind of a second hand on our uh, experience. So from a, from a subjective standpoint, you know, if you want to get quote unquote present, you got to focus on something in the, inside your body and breathing is just kind of the natural way to do that. That's why it allows us to anchor our time perception to where we are in, in whatever place we are. Now that sounds a little mystical and a little subjective, but that's for those, for those of you that don't orient well towards meditation, I kind of put myself in that category um, or toward a lot of kind of relaxation techniques. Um, just concentrating on breathing, regardless of how you breathe can actually be good for anchoring these time perception um, circuits in the brain. Now, in terms of the physiology, so humans and all other mammals have what's called the diaphragm. The diaphragm um, is this organ that allows us to move our lungs. Now, the diaphragm is very interesting because the diaphragm is one of the, it's one of just a couple organs in our body that are skeletal muscle. So you have a heart, cardiac muscle, you got a liver, spleen, et cetera. The diaphragm is different because the diaphragm can be consciously controlled. You can't consciously control your heart. You can't consciously control your spleen. You can't consciously control your liver. But the fact that the diaphragm is made of, of skeletal muscle means that it's every bit as much like a limb or a, you know, like a quadricep or a bicep or a, 
tricep as any other muscle in your body. And that is not a coincidence, okay? Nature doesn't do things on accident or, for, or just for play. It was designed to be consciously controlled. Now, of course, your diaphragm can move your lungs with, without you thinking about it, but of course you can walk without you thinking about it. You don't have to think about your quadriceps while you, while you, while you walk. So the diaphragm was designed to move the lungs for a couple reasons. First of all, the, the fact that mammals have a diaphragm and not other species of animals is not a coincidence. It's only present in animals that have big brains. So every cell in your body needs oxygen, but because it can't pass through, we don't have gills, it can't pass through gills, the oxygen has to be delivered by bringing air into the lungs and then distributed from the lungs to the bloodstream and all the cells of your body. So the diaphragm's job is, of course, to just bring that air in, but it has a second feature which is it sends a nerve connection back to the brain to inform the brain about the status of the body. We don't often think about this, but how does your brain know what's going on in your body? How does it know whether or not you're stressed or you're calm or you're alert? It knows because this nerve called the phrenic nerve, P-H-R-E-N-I-C, phrenic, sends a signal back to the brain of whether or not you're breathing quickly or you're breathing slowly. So now we've said two things that almost seem contradictory, but they're not. They're actually quite complementary, which is you can control this organ with your brain consciously, because I can breathe in now if I decide to, or exhale if I decide to. And that organ is going to inform my brain about the status of my body. So what that means is you can consciously control this organ in your body that then signals to the brain how your brain is supposed to feel. So that means we have conscious control over our what's called our arousal state, over our internal level of alertness or calmness. So it all boils down to some very simple things, which are, for instance, and we'll talk about some actionables, but in general, when we're exhaling longer than we're inhaling and those exhales are slow, we're blowing off a lot of carbon dioxide and our breathing is slow and it signals to the brain that the body is calm and therefore that the brain can be calm. In contrast, if we are breathing fast and we're inhaling a lot more than we're exhaling, the diaphragm is signaling to the brain that the body is undergoing either pressure or threat, or it could be a positive stress, like you're excited about doing something like a run or something exciting. And it's going to signal that back to the brain and the brain will become more alert. So there's a very direct, very mechanical relationship between the two. There has been a lot of discussion and some of your listeners are probably familiar with the notion of the vagus nerve. Vagus um, nerve is this huge nerve network that comes out of the brainstem and connects to most all organs of the body. But the, and the vagus nerve has been sort of put forward by Stephen Porges and others um, whose work I respect as this um, mechanism or this neural pathway that can promote calm. But I just want to point out, and this is no knock on Stephen's work, but the vagus will promote calm, but it, A, it's not, you can't consciously control it and you can't control it directly. And it's a very slow system. So if you eat a big meal, and particularly a carbohydrate-rich meal, that will tend to make you kind of sleepy and relaxed. Once the gut is full, the vagus sends signals back to the brain that the gut is full. It's time to, quote, unquote, rest and digest. So that system works, but it's slow. The diaphragm was designed to update the brain in real time about what the brain should be feeling, at least in terms of level of alertness. So this relationship between the brain and the diaphragm is the, is the fast way. It's, the, it's like a steering wheel, right? It's really the, the, the fastest way we know to control brain states is through controlling respiration. And that 
ability of respiration to control brain states has nothing to do with breath work. It has to do with the number and speed of signals coming back from the diaphragm to, uh, to the brain. And in general, when I think about breath work, I think about it kind of as training up the, this pathway. But there are things that one can do in real time to adjust levels of alertness, levels of calmness that are every bit as powerful uh, as quote unquote breath work. And they really, uh, you know, they map directly to physiological mechanisms that we all have that work the first time and that work every time that you don't need to practice them on a regular basis. You let's can talk, do them let's talk about that right now, Andrew. Why don't you just give us the first one? Yeah. So the, the fastest way to calm down that I know of, if you're feeling too alert, like let's just, I mean, alertness can be a good thing as we all know, but you're feeling too alert, too keyed up and you want to calm down bring your level of arousal down a bit. The quickest way I'm aware of is to activate a set of neurons in the brainstem that are responsible for sighing. And the way to do that is a little bit um, non-intuitive. It's not just a big exhale or a big inhale. It involves breathing in twice through the nose, not separated by an exhale. So you're gonna breathe in through the nose deep, then a second breath through the nose, and then a long exhale. You do that two times or three times, sometimes even just once, and you're going to reset your autonomic nervous system to a state of far much more calm. The reason for this is we actually have a set of neurons in the brainstem that are responsible for sighing. I know I said that right. We have sets of neurons in the brainstem that are responsible for coughing. We have sets of neurons in the brainstem that are responsible for laughter. These neurons are what we want to tap into with this double inhale, long exhale, because it appropriately balances the ratio of carbon dioxide and oxygen in the lungs. So our lungs aren't just two big bags. They have tons of little sacs all over them, like little beads, which are the avioli of the lungs, which give increased surface area to the lungs so you can bring in more oxygen. When you inhale, you expand those little sacs. And when you give that second inhale at the top, ideally both inhales through the nose, those little sacs snap open and what, they don't break open, but they, they fill all the way. And when they do that, they come into contact with the blood supply in a way that pulls carbon dioxide out of the blood supply in just the appropriate dose. And then when you exhale, you dump that carbon dioxide in the appropriate dose and you've got just the right amount of oxygen. So you're alert, but calm. Now you actually do this periodically throughout the night while you're sleeping. And if you watch someone who's napping or you watch it, you know, like my dog's always napping. If I watch him, what he'll do is he'll inhale and then at the top, he'll give a little inhale and then a long exhale. So this is, the reason I like this example is A, you can do it in real time. You can do it anywhere. So ideally both inhales through the nose, long exhale through the mouth. And the other thing I like about it is I'm not a big fan of the, the word hack because, you know, the idea of a hack, um, like biohacking or something, um, is that you're taking machinery that was designed for one thing and you're using it for something else, right? Um, I like tools and there's nothing better than having the right tool for the job, right? You know, it just fits perfectly on that lug nut. You know, you're just, it, there's nothing better than that. And biology built in these mechanisms. So we wouldn't have neurons in our brainstem responsible for sighing were it not for the fact that the sigh is an important feature of our respiration. And we wouldn't have the ability to consciously control this stuff were it not for the ability, were it not for the important role that sighing plays in resetting our carbon dioxide oxygen ratios. So these, I call them proper sighs because uh, it's not just an inhale and exhale, but this double inhale, long exhale, a really powerful way of resetting our nervous system to a calmer state. I love it for <clears throat> a couple of reasons, Andrew. The other, maybe not obvious behavioral reason, if I'm in a team of whatever, how many people, if I'm breathing through my nose intentionally 
and my mouth is shut, I can't speak too soon. All right. That's a little added benefit that we get. Yeah. And I yeah. think that, that, that means something. Okay. So our first takeaway, a little phrenic nerve control with some breathing and, and I love the, I love the neurobiology behind it. Not just, you know, we hear it all the time in sports and otherwise people telling each other, just, just take a deep breath. There's a, there's a good reason for that. I've heard you say before, if you want to expand on this at all, and then we'll move on to some other takeaways that it's very hard to control the mind with thinking. Obviously you just described a way to, you know, for us to help control our mind without thinking, but only bring that up as an encouragement to uh, the folks listening that the positive self-talk we spoke about and these other neurobiology dynamics, I just want to caution, you know, folks that we can't necessarily always think our way out of a situation that's long-term like this. You certainly can't think your way out of a gunfight. You can't think your way out of, you know, many super stressful situations. You have to, you know, feel your way into and out of those. So keeping on this theme of uh, what are we going to do on Monday? What other skills can we recommend that we haven't already talked about or that we have already talked about that we can summarize for everyone? Yeah. So one way that we can bring ourselves to a place of more calm, but also adjust our time perception in a way that's really powerful and really fast is um, by using panoramic vision. And right. this is something that my lab is a big fan of. And uh, we're big fans of it because we like what we see in the data, which are that it, when we're focused on a very particular point in space, whether or not that's a phone or a computer screen or somebody's face that we're talking to, it's not necessarily stressful. It depends, whether or not it's stressful depends on the content of what you're looking at, what you're hearing. But there's another mode of vision which we know immediately calms the nervous system somewhat, and that's panoramic vision. And the way you do this is you keep your head and eyes forward. You don't move your head around or your eyes around, but you dial out your gaze so that you're able to perceive more of your environment, the ceiling, the floor, if you're indoors. At best, you see yourself in the environment. And so panoramic vision uh, releases a mechanism in the brainstem that's responsible for vigilance which allows you to calm just slightly. And it's very, very fast. Now, if you're saying, wait, but I don't wanna release vigilance because a lot of times I need to be on high alert. One thing I'll mention, which is non-trivial, is that panoramic vision, your motion perception in panoramic vision is four times faster than it is when you're in focal vision. So when you're concentrating on one location in space, your perception of, of how fast things are moving is, is greatly deficient. Uh, where things are and how fast they're moving is greatly deficient compared to when you're in panoramic vision. And we've experienced this. When you're walking along on the street and you close your eye and all of a sudden a bee hits your eyelid, you don't even remember closing your eyelid. That's because you were in panoramic vision. You have these pathways that go immediately to motor commands. So for your martial artists, for your military operators, when you find yourself doing things efficiently without even thinking about them, you're generally in this mode of panoramic vision. Mm. And so from a calming perspective, let's say you've just, you know, let's say use the uh, medical uh, professional right now, um, circle back to that. Let's say you just walked out of a high stress scenario. You're walking down the hallway. Take one moment before you look at your phone. Take one moment to just kind of dial out your gaze, even if it just means seeing hallway, ceiling, and floor all at once. Again, you don't have to move your head around. It's just dialing out your gaze. And if you can do it, that double inhale, exhale, that combination brings the nervous system into a state of more calm. Your time perception is still set to your immediate environment. So you're not you know, thinking about the past or the future, but you're, you're just going to bring yourself into a state of clarity that's very, very quick. And again, it's this kind of clear, calm, focused mode that, that's ideal for essentially all work. 
And I, I was thinking of it kind of like a one, two, three, because there's, um, if you do the double inhale, exhale, then panoramic vision, there's this third element. And I know we've talked about this before, Coleman, but which it. is that when we relax ourselves a little bit, the other thing that happens is the muscles of the throat relax. And when the muscles of the throat relax, our cadence of speech relaxes, our transmission of information relaxes, and we, you know, there's a phenomenon called social contagion, right? We can spread stress or we can spread calm. And the main way we do that, right? The main way we do that is by measuring other people's changes in inflection of voice. And some people talk faster. Some people have higher voices than others. Some people have low voices. Some people talk slowly. What we tend to do is we tend to integrate over what we know from experiencing that person previously. And we tend to kind of integrate over how much that voice is stable over time. Mm. And so when we do this, so let's say we're feeling stressed, we do a double inhale and an exhale, then go a little bit of panoramic vision. What I just described takes less than five seconds, right? right? And then if you're able then to drop into your voice and kind of sense, even if you don't need to speak, like, or if you do need to speak, you can immediately, it dilates the, the muscles of the pharynx and larynx that allow you to speak more clearly, to be calmer, to be more deliberate, and so on. So I think, and these are all linked through neural circuits. I mean, they're not the same neural circuits, but they act, they act in kind of a chain. So I recommend starting at the diaphragm, which is at your belt, right near your belly button. So you do that first, then the panoramic vision, then you'll just find your voice will naturally drop to a, a speed and level that transmits calm. The other thing that I know, obviously your lab does, and <clears throat> by, virtue, by virtue of your job, you, everyone in your lab is expert on this, is that I think a big takeaway and something we can do, you know, quote unquote, on Monday is use to our advantage the fact that a little bit of stress, a little bit of uncertainty, this agitation that helps us, that promotes neuroplasticity is whether it's via pen and paper or you're just mindful of it during this, this time period that we can capture an extraordinary amount of learning during this time because presumably, and check me here, Andrew, neuroplasticity is going to be on, you know, it's going to be on, I don't know, I want to say high alert, but it's going to be on, um, it's going to be revved up in a way, I suppose. Definitely. I mean, right now we are all in a heightened state of neuroplasticity. Um, I'm sure there are things you can remember, Coleman, from deployments, like little things that are just oh, yeah. cemented into your mind. Um, and, and some of those might not even have anything to do with actual ops, or I'm sure you remember those too. But, you know, neuroplasticity is this amazing ability that the human nervous system has that all animals have, but, but humans have throughout the lifespan. It's very clear that the human brain can change throughout the lifespan. When we're kids, we tend to learn passively. We don't need a whole lot of activation or alertness in order to, to learn things or focus. Now, you can't be fast asleep. I learned that the hard way in high school. Um, if you want to learn, you've got to, you got to listen. But as we get older, what, and after about age 25, it's very clear that neuroplasticity can only be triggered by high levels of alertness and even sense of, uh, sense of urgency. And that is because... In high levels of alertness, there's a different neurochemical that's released called acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is like a spotlight. It comes out of the brainstem and forebrain, and it's released at the sites of connection in the brain that underlie certain behaviors. Let me give you an example of this. If I'm trying to learn a, a, you know, like a golf swing or something, I don't play golf, but if I ever did, I'd, I'd have to pay a lot of attention to you know, setting the ball down, 
my swing, where my hips are, where my shoulders are, et cetera. I'd be listening to instructions. In those moments, acetylcholine is being secreted at the areas, the neurons in the brain that are responsible for hearing the directions, for feeling the movement, for smacking the ball, all that, okay? Yeah. Once I learn it, acetylcholine doesn't need to be turned on. But I have to have a high level of alertness and focus in order to trigger that plasticity event. So right now, the fact that so many people in the world, in particular the people that are listening to this podcast, are in levels of increased alertness and focus means that the, the, the paths to neuroplasticity are open. This acetylcholine is available for use and for triggering plasticity. So the things that we learn and focus on, read, practices we develop, um, relationships we build during this time will be cemented into our nervous system. Now, I should mention that the actual changes in the brain don't occur during the high alertness phase. They occur after periods of deep rest, mainly sleep, but also mm -hmm. things like yoga and deep rest. So neuroplasticity is a two-phase process where we need to first focus on something very intensely. You have to have a high level of alertness in order to do that. And then the actual rewiring, the, the literally the changes in the wiring of our brain and nervous system occur away from the event. This is why if you've ever been working at learning a new skill, you go, 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 you can't get it. You take a couple of days off, you come back and it's right there. So right now we are all in a heightened state of neuroplasticity and it's not, and that's a wonderful thing because neuroplasticity as a state means that we can bring in all sorts of new learnings and new behaviors and new ways of being. It's actually easier to learn things in this time than it will be in any other time. This is going to be another topic for maybe another recording we've talked around it a little bit, but I, you know, I have my own experience with the go harder for longer with more intensity, high burn rate for years and years and years and years. And then as we spoke about much earlier in the conversation, the micro elements of <clears throat> residue regeneration recovery for me were, and, and you alluded to this in some recent conversations that the micro experiences for me was every deployment, I would come home, Within 24 to 48 hours, I was in cold sweats and a fever. And after I learned more about this topic and learned a little bit more about how to, you know, take care of myself, I realized I call it a sympathetic offloading, meaning, you know, sympathetic part of the autonomic nervous system offloading once, you know, we take a rest. And Preston and I are, are about to put out a paper that I think we've been working on for now over a year that's had a bunch of input from our entire community, which we title residue. And it stems from a conversation with a lot of different people, but actually stemmed from an initial conversation that Preston had with an actor who's done tons of movies. And he said that, you know, if he plays one person, if he plays Andrew Huberman in one movie and he drags that residue into another movie where he plays Coleman Ruiz, that has a cascading effect over time. And we had this aha moment that potentially, you know, the Mission Critical Team Institute community would identify with this idea of residue and dragging experience from experience from experience from experience over a, you know, whether it's four years in at least, you know, my experience in the military, but four years in a profession or 24 years in a high intensity, long duration, rapidly developing, you know, complex environments what kind of residue do we carry forward and what physiological effects does, does that have? So only bring that up in this conversation to just include it as a cautionary note to all of our teammates on the front lines now, particularly in healthcare that, and I was having this chat with some other folks that I know here in Baltimore just the other day, 
someone right now is one thing on deployment is one thing. The question is what's going to happen when we come off deployment. No, it's such a great point. You know, I, I think uh, many people are probably familiar with their ability to just go, go, go and push and push. And then you finally rest. And then that's when people get sick. And that's because of this ability for the nervous system to trigger activation of the immune system if it needs to. I remember humans evolved to deal with famines and droughts and, you know, all sorts of stuff where getting sick was not an option, right? It just was not an option. It's, it, we can do that. But the residue that you're referring to, you know, I think that the autonomic nervous system, which is this system that regulates alertness and calmness and sleep and, you know, and stress and all this um, powerful stuff, it, it doesn't have a memory at the level of like the same way our hippocampus has a memory, like remembering our uh, a birthday party or remembering someone's face, but it has a memory in terms of, it's, it's a little bit more machine-like. It has, um, you know, its gears can get rusty. Its gears can get, um, its gears can get squeaky and its gears can be made to operate really smoothly over long periods of time. And the way that the autonomic nervous system likes to operate over long periods of time is toggling back and forth. You know, it's, um, you know, for people that are experiencing a lot of stress right now, because as they're on the front lines, it's not a time to throw additional stress in, right? It's, it's everything we've talked about today is really about creating buffers against that for people that are, uh, you know, high energy, high output who are away from their, their playing field, so to speak, you know, for those people, obviously staying in motion and staying, uh, you know, keeping those those circuits primed is going to be critical because I, I think, you know, and I know um, uh, a lot of these folks, too, where they don't do well when they're not in. They might not be going further, uh, faster with higher intensity or I forget how you uh, described it, but you just don't you, you don't want to push the system too far to either side for, for too long. You want to keep it like a nicely, um, finely oiled machine. And that's totally possible. And it just comes through practices and actionables. I wish there was this beautiful map that we could see inside the body and brain that over time, are we doing a good job modulating the autonomic nervous system? Are we training it? Are we overtraining it? We just don't always get that. Uh, we, well, not always. We, we don't, we don't have that um, dashboard to look at, you know, and that would be an amazing thing to see. It would. You know, what's interesting is that the autonomic nervous system was designed to make it so that you could do however many deployments you needed to do and then rest for, I won't say an equal amount of time, but an appropriate amount of time given that, right? It was designed to be variable in terms of how long and hard it could lean in. And so um, there should be a way to model that or figure out the output. You know, it's, it's interesting because on a much tighter time scale, we th think about heart rate variability, which is a good thing, right? Yeah. You know, having, your, having a lot of variability in your heart rate is great. And in the same way that um, variability maybe, maybe in breath rate is going to be great too. I imagine that would be the case given the, the close link between those two systems. And uh, we need better ways to measure the activity of the autonomic nervous system on different time scales. And I think um, my lab is making efforts to create some of those technologies. If any of the listeners out there have ideas, um, I'd love to hear from you. That uh, certainly is important. It would be wonderful to have that map. I'm sure we'll be hearing from tons of listeners who may want to collaborate on something, Andrew. So is there anything that you really wanted to share that you and I covered in prep that we haven't covered now? Nothing leaps to mind. I think uh, I feel like we've been thorough, but never exhaustive. Um, and we can never, uh, at least for descriptions of the brain, there are a lot of different rabbit holes we could go down. For right now, I think that if people can just anchor themselves to these core concepts of, you know, dopamine and serotonin being positive, 
acetylcholine and focus and attention, epinephrine being the way that we get into movement, but that can, you know, eventually can deplete us. And just start to play with these in their mind as different ingredients that they are really in control of. I think that by doing that, they will have acquired a level of sophistication and an ability to apply that information in a way that I'm hoping puts them on really solid ground. I know there's there's uh, great evidence that when people do that, uh, they really can start to move to a place of, of more efficiency and more longevity. And when I say longevity, I mean in terms of being able to work at max output, recover, work at max output, recover, because that's really what these jobs are about. For everybody, so you hear me say, Dr. Andrew Huberman, neuroscientist, neurobiologist, associate professor at Stanford University, Department of Neurobiology. Thanks for being with us all. I know the whole community will appreciate it and there'll be, uh, there'll be more to follow, I'm sure. Well, thanks so much for having me on. And, and I wanna thank the listeners uh, for all the incredibly important and valuable work that you're doing. I'm most grateful. Have a great day. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. You can find us at missioncti.com. At our website, you can sign up for our newsletter, which puts you on the distribution list. You can, of course, share the team cast. You can rate us on iTunes. I have no idea what the rating does, but you can rate us there. Presumably it helps. <laughs>